welcome to another episode of Are You Fucking Shitting Me? How you doing, April? I'm good, Rachel. How are you? I'm pretty all right. Although, I gotta say, I need a J-O-B. Anyone in L.A.? <laughs> Anyone in L.A. got a J-O-B? I mean, I'd much rather work on this podcast, though. I know, me too. But if you live here, you gotta have a job. <laughs> if you live in this world, you gotta have a job. You gotta have a job. And that's okay. I like to work. So, Rachel, what are we talking about this week? We're talking about the Marys. And by the Marys, I mean Mary Shelley and her mother, Mary Wollstonecraft. Oh, I love Mary Shelley. Yeah. Frankenstein's one of my all-time favorite books. He's one of my favorite monsters, even though I don't think he's a monster. But in our monster canon, he's so sympathetic. I think it's one of the best, you know, gothic horror stories. You oh, know? yeah. I read that around the same time that I read Interview with a Vampire. And uh, while I love the idea of Interview with a Vampire, I always was like, the story is so good. Why can't Anne Rice write more like Mary Shelley? (laughs) (laughs) Why can't most people write more like Mary Shelley? Exactly. Here's the thing. It's beyond the book, what we're going to be talking about today. I had no idea. I mean, I kind of knew if you looked in the dictionary and you looked up gothic romance, you'd see Mary Shelley. And I love Frankenstein, but... I didn't know her mom was such a kick-ass feminist. Like, crazy. I had no idea. My education is sorely lacking. I took a women's literature class in college, and I had to read Mary Wollstonecraft and Mary Shelley, but I had forgotten that they were mother and daughter. (laughs) It's crazy. I was just scrolling through Twitter, as I do, and someone decided to just list off all these Mary Shelley facts. And you know, this is why we have this podcast is you see stuff like that. And you're like, ah, is that real? So I started looking them up. And I asked a couple of them in the interview. So I won't I won't go into that. But while I was looking weird facts about Mary Shelley up, I came across this really cool book called Romantic Outlaws. And it's by Charlotte Gordon. And it's about the parallel lives these two really strong and intelligent women. Well, Frankenstein came out 200 years ago, just about, right? So 1818, and then her mom was before her. So we're talking about these radical feminists living, you know, 200 years ago. Oh, yeah, they broke all the rules. Broke all the rules. They both had kids out of wedlock. They both were rebellious as hell, writers, super, super smart women. So I reached out to the author, Charlotte Gordon, who is fantastic. And she agreed to talk to me about it and go over some of the things that were similar in their lives, some of the most amazing facts that she found about them. But also, I'm going to leave some to the imagination because this book is one of the better reads. It's great. Wow, well, I can't wait to hear the interview, and I can't wait to read the book. My name is Charlotte Gordon, and I'm a writer, and I'm pretty obsessed with telling the stories of women that I think the world should know. I feel like there are many, many heroines that uh, are unknown, unsung, and that can inspire us to live better, more courageous lives. I became interested in Mary Shelley and her mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, first of all, because I didn't know they were mother and daughter. And I was teaching many years ago, I was teaching a course in women in literature. And I thought, oh, you know, we should read an excerpt from Mary Wollstonecraft because she wrote A Vindication of the Rights of Woman and it's famous for being 
one of the first feminists, but at the time I didn't know much about her. I thought, yeah, she's important, but this text looks really kind of boring. And then when I was reading the little biography of her, I thought she was the mother of that incredible, radical Mary Shelley who wrote Frankenstein. I thought, oh, of course, cool Mary Wollstonecraft would be the mother of cool Mary Shelley. But how come I didn't know that? Like, how on earth is it that I wouldn't have understood that there's this incredible feminist legacy? Um, Why wasn't I taught this? Why isn't this more common knowledge? Mary Wollstonecraft was born in the 18th century. And when she was born, it was really a terrible time to be a woman. Your husband owned everything. You had no right to your own money, to your own property. You could not initiate a divorce no matter what he did to you. There was no such thing as domestic abuse. It was a husband's responsibility to, quote, discipline his wife, and the only reform that, that the 18th century came up with was the idea that the whip a husband used to discipline his wife should not be thicker than the thumb. That's where we get the idea of the rule of thumb. Mary Wollstonecraft was outraged at the injustice that women faced. She thought that women had a right to determine their own fate, to direct their own lives, and should be allowed to get their own education. Experts of the era thought that if women use their brains too much, they might, you know, self-destruct. <laughs> um, so <laughs> Wollstonecraft's ideas were considered so radical that she was called a whore and a hyena in petticoats when she published her very famous book, A Vindication of the Rights of Woman. Looking back, her claims don't even seem to be so radical. All she says is, hey, I think women can get educated. Hey, I think women are stronger than what all you guys are saying they can be hey, it's not fair. It's really just about all that she says. But it was considered so shocking at the time that she became the most controversial female on really on either side of the Atlantic and throughout Europe. She did have some really interesting admirers. President John Adams read her book on the French Revolution many times. And if you look at his copy of it, you can see all his notes. Like he has like a ongoing dialogue with her about politics in the margins of his book. But She was very famous and very admired by radicals and hated by conservatives. Uh, One of the things that really interested me about Mary Wollstonecraft is I knew that she was a great radical thinker, but what I didn't know was that her life was so radical. If there was a rule to break, Mary Wollstonecraft broke it. She did not believe in marriage, and so for her, marriage represented a kind of um, prostitution or slavery for women because you signed all of your rights away the moment you got married. So when she fell in love with a sexy American, she was British, who didn't believe in marriage either, she was thrilled because that meant that they could live together as equals. So they live together as equals. Everything is great. She gets pregnant, fine. They're soulmates. They're living according to her philosophy. She has a baby. Everything is terrific. She doesn't call a doctor because, you know, having a baby isn't an illness. She has a midwife come and she delivers the baby with, you know, strength and vigor and is already hiking around town a few hours after she has the baby. And then he abandons her and she's left on her own to be a single mom during an era when you're not supposed to be having, you know, babies out of wedlock. And she almost succumbs to despair. Ultimately, she recovers. She writes a book about the experience of having her heart broken 
which becomes one of the most important books of the era and inspires the movement that we now know as Romanticism in England that's going to ultimately inspire her daughter, Mary Shelley. And she really becomes a kind of intellectual heavyweight as a result of her heartbreak. And so in that sense, she's super inspirational as well. The funny thing about Mary Wollstonecraft is I do think that she is one of those geniuses or extraordinary people where we wonder how come she was so exceptional? How was she able to look at the injustices of her society and understand they were injustices and then fight against them? So often, if you're born into a culture that says women are stupid and or women shouldn't, you know, do X or Y, you just swallow it and think that's But Wollstonecraft, I think, was born outraged and born super smart, but super courageous. Uh, As a girl growing up, she was born into a terrible family. Her father was an alcoholic and abusive, and she used to sleep on the threshold of her parents' bedroom to protect her mother from her father's drunken rages. And some of her earliest memories were of hearing her mother shriek at the sort of hands of her father's abuse. Um, She rescues her younger sister from an abusive husband a little later on in her life, which, by the way, was totally against the law. Both she and her sister could have been imprisoned or sent to an asylum. There was no such thing, as I said earlier, as an abusive marriage. Marriage was marriage was marriage was marriage. There was no way out for women. Ultimately, Wollstonecraft is a kind of miracle, I think, of bravery and inspiration at the same time that, you know, we can also point to these sort of early injustices that, that seem to have fueled her outrage. I think one of the things that saved Wollstonecraft, which makes her different, was reading, her passion for reading. And by the time she was 16, she was actually super depressed at all the injustice she had experienced and she had watched her mother experience and that women, of course, experienced all around her. But she had a kind of knack of inspiring people to like her. And a smart neighbor minister, actually, who no longer believed in God, but was still exquisitely educated, introduced her to the author John Locke. Now, when I say John Locke to my students, their eyes tend to roll back in their heads with boredom. But in 1776, which is when Mary Wollstonecraft started reading John Locke, John Locke was considered so shocking and so radical that he was outlawed on the campus at Oxford and was being read by people like Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and all sorts of other radicals throughout the world. For Mary Wollstonecraft, when she read him at age 16, she finally found a philosophical underpinning for her sense that um, injustice should be fought because Locke said two really important things. He said, we are all born with a blank slate. Men and women are alike, have souls without a sex, so we all have equal rights. Our souls are equal. And he also said, when there's injustice, it is our duty and our responsibility to rise up and throw off the chains of that injustice. So Mary Wollstonecraft wasn't just, you know, emotional about her injustice. She she learned to find reason and examples in history and philosophy to support her ideas and her feelings. Mary Wollstonecraft believed that you should live according to your ideals and your heart. Like you should not listen to society's rules. You should break the rules and do what's true and honest because society is false. And what's really important is 
your instincts, your heart, and your ideas. How did Wollstonecraft's life and teachings influence Mary Shelley? The very interesting thing about the relationship between Mary Wollstonecraft and Mary Shelley, mother and daughter, is that Wollstonecraft died about nine, ten days after giving birth to Mary Shelley. Now, I didn't know that originally before I wrote my book, Romantic Outlaws, which is, you know, the story of mother and daughter and essentially is based on this idea that the mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, influenced Mary Shelley. And so when I realized, wait, mom died 10 days after giving birth to her daughter, how could she have influenced her daughter? How could a dead mom influence a daughter? And then I thought, wait, look at me. My whole life has been influenced by dead people. So on the one hand, I think that having Mary Wollstonecraft as your mother, if you're young Mary Shelley, in a way, by having her be dead, it gave Mary Shelley a better chance at idealizing her. And Mary Wollstonecraft had written a ton of books. So by the time Mary Shelley is 11 or 12, she's read almost all of her mother's books many times. And she is also taken, this is kind of a, weird gothic thing, but her father, who's heartbroken when when Mary Wollstonecraft dies, little Mary's father takes her to the graveyard almost every day and teaches her how to read on her mother's gravestone so that her name, which is, you know, the same as her mother's, her first experience really of reading and writing is through their shared name, Mary, M-A-R-Y. She traced it on her mother's mm-hmm. gravestone. That becomes her most special place. And when young Mary Shelley meets a handsome, very deep young poet named Percy Shelley, she takes him to her special place, her mother's grave, and essentially flings herself into his arms and says, we should be together. And Percy, who's actually already married, says, uh, okay, fine, let's be together, because, of course, he doesn't really believe in marriage either, and certainly young Mary doesn't, as a true daughter of Mary Wollstonecraft. And she says, well, because you're already married, we're going to have to run away together. And he says, "Uh, okay, uh, where to? And she says, Paris, because that's where my mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, went. And what do they take with them? Not, you know, sexy lingerie. No, they take with them an entire stack of Mary Wollstonecraft's books, And they read to each other from her books while they're abroad on their, you know, honeymoon. I suppose we can't call it a honeymoon because they couldn't get married since he was already married. But Mary Wollstonecraft always loomed large over Mary Shelley. And I think in part it's because she was not alive but was a figure that young Mary could idealize. We don't know for sure if Mary Shelley lost her virginity on her mother's grave. But we do know that that is where she initiated her love affair with Percy Shelley. We don't know how far they went. She was 16. I think Percy was 20. But it was a weirdly private place, which was really hard to find during that era. And it was, as I said before, her special place. It was the place that she thought was holiest in the world, her mother's grave. And she'd fallen in love with Percy, wanted to share it with him, and she was dedicated her living according to the spirit of her rebellious mother. And so one of the ways her mother had rebelled was the strict rules that governed the behaviors of, you know, men and women, and particularly when it came to sex. So there had been sort of strangely no better way to proclaim her loyalty to her mother 
than to say, I don't believe in marriage. I'm going to act on my love for this man, and I'm going to do it right here near my mother. So certainly something happened on that grave, but, you know, given the complexities of 18th century underwear, et cetera, who knows how far they went. And Percy Shelley um, writes a letter to a friend of his sort of describing this this evening, and he doesn't, you know, it's the 18th century, so, well, actually, it's the 19th century, so he doesn't go into um, graphic detail. What we do know is, he says, Mary, Mary was able to see into the truth. She knew that we should be together and expressed it this night at her mother's grave. Certainly something sexual that was important happened that sealed the fate of these two young lovers. Okay. Mary Shelley is pretty much the poster woman for gothic romanticism. She really is. (laughs) I can't think of a more gothic and more romantic (laughs) figure. I know. Can you believe it? Like on her mother's grave, which is also where she learned to read. I love that part. Like the two sexiest parts of her, if you ask me learning to read and having sex or almost on her mom's grave. Did Mary Shelley really carry Percy Shelley's calcified heart around after he died? Yeah. After she dies, they open up her little portable writing desk and they're tucked inside a little folded piece of paper and envelope. They find the the ashes of Percy's heart. What had happened is, um, I don't know if you know this whole story, but when Percy dies, which is a long and amazing saga in and of itself, he drowns in this fairly dramatic fashion off the coast of Italy while sailing in a storm that he shouldn't have been sailing in. His body washes up on the beach, and his friends are heartbroken. So Lord Byron, all the other great Gothic figures of the time period, gather on the beach, and they say, you know what, this is Percy Shelley. We should give him a you know a romantic send-off. And so they burn him on a bonfire, and then right at the end, Byron says, I want his skull. But one of the other friends says, no, you can't have it, because they know this story about Byron has someone else's skull. They think that he's been, like, drinking beer out of someone. And again, I I think it would be pretty hard to do this, but someone supposedly snatches Shelley's heart before it burns away on the bonfire. And then afterwards, and this is where the biographers really have a great time, there's a big fight about who should have his heart. One of his best friends thinks he should have it. Another friend thinks he should have it. They don't think Mary should have it because that's another long story. You have to read my book to hear why. But they fight about whether or not Mary should get it. But ultimately, Byron persuades Shelley's friends that Mary should have the heart. And they think that that's what they find after she died. The story of the writing of Frankenstein is a great story in and of itself. And there's many untruths about it as well that we should clear up. Um, To begin with, Mary and Percy and Mary's stepsister, Claire, had decided that they wanted to vacation in Geneva for the summer for lots of complicated reasons. Um, Mary had a toddler that was beginning to cough, and they were worried about his health. And his name was William, and so they wanted to get him out of London for the summer because they had lost their first baby after just a week or so after the baby had been born. They wanted very much to get to know Lord Byron, who was kind of the Mick Jagger of the of of the era. Like he was just the original bad boy poet. He was a bestseller. Everyone loved and admired him. He was handsome. And they knew he was going to be in Geneva. And Mary's stepsister, Claire, had actually started a love affair with Byron, which was 
fairly one-sided. We think that Byron was mostly interested in men, although he had lots of sex with lots of different women. But, you know, if you threw yourself at him, he'd have sex with you, essentially, which is what Claire did. So, married half-sister. <laughs> so, off they go to Geneva. And it's that year is known as the year without a summer because an Indonesian volcano had gone off, I think, the year before. And there were, you know, the weather patterns had been all disrupted. So, it rained and it rained and it rained in Geneva. And Byron and Mary and Percy and Claire and another young man named Polidori, who's going to go on and write a book called The Vampire, are cooped up. And you can't coop up a whole bunch of romantic poets without expecting something to happen. And finally, one late, late night, they're all at Byron's house. And he says, I am so bored. I'm so sick of all the books that we've been reading. Let's see who can write the scariest ghost story. And so they all go off into their corners, and Byron starts to write a ghost story, but, you know, then he gets sort of bored and goes back to writing about Byron, which is what he likes to write about. And Shelley starts writing a ghost story, and he gets kind of bored and goes back to writing about, essentially, Shelley. But Mary puts her pen to paper and does not stop writing for two years, and by 1818, has finished Frankenstein and it's published before she even turns 21. And so, in fact, we're coming up on the 200th anniversary of the publication of Frankenstein. One of the things that is not true about the writing of Frankenstein is that in later years, long after Percy had died, the publishers came to Mary Shelley and they said, we'd like you to revise Frankenstein so that we can put it back out into the world. So she did, and she wrote this introduction that everybody thinks is the gospel truth about the writing of Frankenstein, but it's not. And I just want to clear up one falsehood that she helped spread. She said in this introduction to a later, this later edition of Frankenstein, she said, you know, I really struggled to come up with a story, and it wasn't until I had a dream one night that the story came to me, and there's many reasons she said that. One is that when people found out that she'd written Frankenstein, um, they condemned her. They, it had been published anonymously, but when people found out a woman had written it, they said, what is wrong with this woman? She must be monstrous. She must be perverse. This is terrible. Oh, no. And so by the time she's reissuing the book, She's very concerned about how is she going to earn a living. Percy is dead. She's trying to earn a living by her pen. And by saying that the story came to her in a dream, she could kind of escape some of the condemnation of people saying, how did she come up with this terrible idea on the one hand? On the other hand, if you were in the know as a romantic, you knew that dreams only came to special people. So Coleridge, for example, and Shelley are famous for writing poems about their dreams. So she was also kind of secretly saying, I, I didn't think of this myself. It came to me in a dream, but also I'm kind of a great romantic figure because this dream came to me, aren't I, you know, I'm special. You know, he follows so, her reading lists, by the way. What? The monster. Yes. Which, well, she never calls him monster, just Frankenstein does. He's the creature. Yeah, he reads Paradise Lost. He reads everything that Mary, the teenager, is reading as she writes it. He, I would always say to my students, listen, the creature has read more than you guys have read. Maybe you should read a little Milton. <laughs> That's delicious. That's a really yeah. great fact. It's just off the cuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, that's great. <laughs> There's one other thing that's curious to me. So 
Um, I was recently asked to write the introduction for Penguins reissuing of Frankenstein in honor of the anniversary of the first publication of Frankenstein. So I wrote this introduction to Frankenstein for Penguin. And what was really interesting to me is after I wrote it, I went and compared my introduction to other introductions. And my introduction is pretty much the only introduction that really emphasizes Mary Shelley's inspiration and relationship with her mother. Other introductions, you know, do her biography and they say, yeah, she's the daughter of Mary Wollstonecraft who wrote A Vindication of the Rights of Woman. But most introducers are not interested in this idea of a feminist legacy. What I would like people to know about Mary Shelley and Mary Wollstonecraft is how brave they were. I love about both of them that they broke the rules that they thought the rules weren't fair. And ultimately, they really didn't care what other people thought. They lived according to their consciences. They lived with integrity. And they were both people who believed in the power of ideas and the power of words. They both thought they could change the world through their writing. And they never got to see any of the changes that they hoped for come to pass. They really had to live in the belief that their books someday might influence their readers to fight against injustice and to make this world a better place. And I guess I found that as a writer just profoundly inspirational. That's why I really want people to know about them. This idea of mother passing on to daughter, courage, ideals, and a kind of radicalism that Wollstonecraft passes on to Shelley. And I think it's a really vital story because I think that is really who who we are, who we hope to be is, you know, as Wollstonecraft passed her radicalism on to Shelley, I like to think that Shelley passed that radicalism on to the women who came after her, ultimately to us. It's a kind of long chain of being that I want us to honor. So there's our interview. Yeah, she's incredibly inspiring. I mean, not only is she writing about these two women that are so inspiring, but her passion about them is also very inspiring. I'm so grateful to her for writing about them and for passing on their stories because I think they're so important. And I was lucky enough to take a women's literature class where I learned about them, but I think that most people don't. And and also in the class, it wasn't like we spent a bunch of time talking about the relationship between mother and daughter. And this was 20 years ago. So yeah, this is a fresh new angle. And, yeah, exactly. But I loved that they were both incredibly romantic Ugh. and incredibly determined and inc- incredibly strong. So strong. And I can't imagine what it must have been like to be that open about who you were. They didn't believe in marriage and that they had sex out of wedlock and all of these things that were so, so progressive. You know, we take for granted kind of how, you know, how easy we have it in some ways. Yeah, I mean, there's a long way to go. Sure, we've talked about Absolutely. that. But Absolutely. one of the things that I think is important is to really draw a line under, it wasn't just taboo, especially for Wollstonecraft, to save her sister from an abusive husband and to try to protect her mother from an abusive husband. Women had less rights than dogs. You had no rights. So taking her sister from that husband who had nearly driven her insane with abuse 
was literally illegal. It was something that was not just frowned upon. It was something that she was not supposed to do. And she, with her own gumption, and with also, I think, as we heard, after reading Locke and this idea of everyone is equal, just said, yeah, I'm going to fight for this and fight against injustice. It's crazy that she influenced our founders in America. Pretty amazing. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I wonder how many of these equality arguments that have been woven into the fabric of what we believe as Americans, whether or not we've reached those (laughs) ideals, how many were actually inspired by her writings? Yeah, it'd be really interesting to go back and read some of her work and see if we can see where the influence came from. You know, I also was reminded of, this is a little aside, but do you know that show Chef's Table? Like, you know, I love Chef's Table. <laughs> so beautifully shot. Yeah. So there's there's an episode where um, the first episode of the last season, I believe, is about a South Korean monk. And she talks about how her parents gave her this huge gift of freedom by allowing her to become a monk and not get married. Yeah. And I just thought, now this is a woman who's in her 50s, and she was facing the same kinds of things that Wollstonecraft and Mary Shelley felt. You were expected to get married and to live the life of the husband. I also love that episode of Chef's Table. It brought me to tears several times. So Yeah, I've seen it three times now, and I cry every single time. Every single time. That woman is just so uh, beautifully, I don't quite know how to discuss, she's, she's just so... Peaceful. Yeah, blissfully peaceful. And for some reason, <laughs> the story of the Marys kind of reminded me of her, her plight. Um, I also loved hearing about how Frankenstein came to be written. Mm-hmm. And there's actually a movie that I saw years ago with uh, Laura Dern's in it, Eric Stoltz. It's called Haunted Summer. Really? And it's about them writing these stories for each other. Is it about- a good movie? Well, I, you know, I haven't seen it for 20 years. I loved it at the time. Okay, I'm, I'm down. I'll yeah. watch it. it. It kind of has, you know, Merchant Ivory feel is what I remember. I like a Merchant Ivory. I like a Merchant Ivory film. I said a couple facts sent me down this rabbit hole, and it was Mary Shelley carrying Percy's heart around after he was dead, and then also the thought that she maybe had lost her virginity on her mother's grave. They're a little bit more salacious, but I was like, whoa whoa, she's as goth as can be. Yeah, exactly. I loved hearing those stories. (laughs) And I think those might have been in the movie. It's definitely popular knowledge. Although, you know, Charlotte says maybe they didn't go all the way on the grave. Clothing (laughs) being what it was. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Can't can't get those uh, bodices open fast enough. Or what were they wearing? Bloomers? How many pairs of underwear do you think she had on? They had so many layers of clothing. And (laughs) all those tiny buttons and laces and stuff, please. Oh, my God. We're very lucky we don't have to wear all that crap. Right? (laughs) (laughs) I was listening to this book on audio tape, The Romantic Outlaws. The narrator is English. And so it has this real feel of listening to a Jane Austen book with heroines that are bigger than any fictional heroine ever before and their real life. And it's so inspiring. And I was actually having a rough day the other day and I just kept thinking, yeah, be true to yourself. Fight for what's right. Take some chances. These women took chances and it was really inspirational. Better than a self-help book. Better than anything else. Just like, holy crap, they're real. Yeah, there's something about hearing 
the stories of real life women and real life people who do outstanding things and and fight for justice and fight for what they believe in that yeah is more inspiring than any self-help book I, I totally agree with that yeah it's it's pretty great and it's well written and well read on audiobook and I will say you know run out I do say go out and I recommend this book it's Romantic Outlaws by Charlotte Gordon and she did say if you go buy it she'd prefer it if you bought it at a local bookstore you can get it on Amazon though but wouldn't it be nice to support someone local and you can also check her out at her website charlottebooks.com we'll put all of her information website uh, Twitter everything on our website Great. I'm going to have to check out the book. I can't wait to read it. Do you have anything fun coming up, April? Uh, Getting ready to start grad school. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm nervous about that. You're going to be awesome. (laughs) What are you going to be studying? Uh, Visual anthropology, Um, which is is, uh, making documentaries, basically. Rad. So I think it'll be great. You're going to be doing visual stuff, long form of our mini podcasts. Exactly. That's what we're going to do. We're going to turn some of these podcasts into documentaries. Ah, that's so cool. Which will be great. I'm really, really proud of you and so excited. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I think it'll, I hope, I hope I can keep up with everything. Ah, well. You know, whatever. We do what we can. I got extra time on my hands right now. (laughs) (laughs) Come take classes with me. I could pick up some of the slack over here. (laughs) You always pick up all the slack. No, no. We do equal work. (laughs) What Uh, about you? What's going on with you? Just, you know, hitting the pavement. I'm going to be a secret shopper this weekend because, you know, got to make some money somehow. All right. I think you should talk about that on the podcast because what the heck does a secret shopper do? I've always wondered. Well, like, I'll is, find out. Do you like, you know, you can be playing our theme song and like tiptoe into the aisles of the grocery store. And, like, I'm pretty sure that's how know. I'm going to do it. I'm going to be disguised as a bush. <laughs> oh, nice. Oh, good, good. That's great. Oh, sh- oh good. Good old spicy costumes. <laughs> that's great. And I am excited. I'm going to speak um, another episode coming up. I'm going to speak with an art heist expert and he's gonna, we're going to talk about an art heist. I can't wait to hear that one because I love art heists. Big fan of any kind of heist and (laughs) fascinated by real heists. I have a good story about a diamond heist (sighs) that I can share with you, but I can't tell who it's about. Well, I'm going to want to hear that. (laughs) All right, guys, as always, thank you for listening and for your support on our GoFundMe and on our Patreon page. Um, You can check us out at rufsmpodcast.com and at rufsm on Twitter. And we're on Facebook, too. And Instagram, when I remember to post something. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you for reviewing us, and keep your ideas coming. We want to hear all of your uh, submissions for our podcast network, and we'll keep you updated on how that's going. Yeah, we're going to run a contest on, on something, so we'll keep you posted when we get that going. Until then. I'm Rachel. And I'm April. Bye-bye. See you next week.